This is an ABC podcast. Well, g'day and welcome to Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer. Thanks for tuning in. Now, today on the show, Winston Churchill. He's regularly described as the greatest ever Briton. With growing confidence and growing strength in the air, we shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. Churchill. The subject of countless plays, movies, drama series and documentaries and biographies. Indeed, believe it or not, there have been a thousand Churchill biographies. One thousand. The first biography was written in 1905 and the author of the latest one is our guest today. Now, according to the prominent British columnist and historian Simon Heffer, regular guest on this program, this most recent Churchill biography is, quote, the best single volume imaginable of a man whose life it would seem technically impossible to get into a single volume. <laughs> the book is called Churchill, Walking with Destiny, and the author is Andrew Roberts, who's written other widely acclaimed books, including a biography on Napoleon and The Storm of War, a new history of the Second World War. Andrew, welcome to ABC Radio. Thank you, Tom. It's a great honour to be on the show. Now, as I mentioned, there have already been a thousand Churchill books published. What's different about yours? Well, I was very fortunate that there's been an enormous amount of new sources that have come out uh, over the last five years since I've been writing this book. And the Queen allowed me to be the first Churchill biographer to use her father's diaries. And King George VI met Churchill every Tuesday of the Second World War. Churchill trusted him with all the great secrets of the war, and luckily he wrote down everything that Churchill said. There have been 41 new sets of papers that have been deposited at Churchill College Archives in uh, Cambridge University, and various other people, like the uh, Soviet ambassador at the time, Ivan Maisky, wrote his diaries, and those have become available in Moscow over the last four years. So, in fact, uh, that, on top of the verbatim accounts of the war cabinet that I discovered six years ago, allows me to um, have something on pretty much every page of this book that's never appeared in a Churchill biography. Okay, well, let's start with Churchill's upbringing. What can you tell us about Winston's parents briefly? Um, Well, his father was tremendously upper class. He was a charismatic, uh, very successful Victorian politician. He became uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer, but he never saw any scintilla of genius in Churchill, um, and he wrote him letters that, frankly, no father should ever write to any son, full of contempt and disdain. And yet his uh, son, Winston, continued to love him and uh, admired him, and when uh, his father died, when Winston was 20, he wrote his father's biography and named his son Winston, uh, sorry, Randolph, his father's name, and he basically uh, didn't allow it to, to screw him up, whereas um, uh, his mother also uh, took no notice of him at all. She was a great American beauty and high society um, lady who was having affairs with the Prince of Wales and the Austrian ambassador, mm. and uh, he also worshipped and admired her. Yeah, okay, and he went to school. Did he, did, he have, did he have much luck at school? I mean, what sort of student was he? He was a much better student than he made himself out to be. It's very rare for politicians to try and make themselves out to be thicker than they genuinely um, are. Uh, But Churchill did. In fact, uh, 
far from being the dunce that he portrayed himself in his autobiography, My Early Life, he in fact uh, was in the top third of all the classes in all the subjects he took. Okay, well, let's turn to Churchill's politics because he wasn't always a conservative. He crossed the parliamentary floor in 1904 over the threat uh, the Balfour government opposed to free trade. In 1908, at 33, he was the youngest cabinet member in 40 years. Um, and then, of course, uh, he was a f- pretty significant figure in the British military from an early age. Um, this is of relevance to Australians, Andrew. What do you write about his failings at Gallipoli in 1915? Well, of course, he was responsible for the idea of the, um, of the attack in the Straits of the Dardanelles. Um, and it was a brilliant idea. If it had come off, it would have been one of the great strategic coups of the, uh, of the history of warfare. But uh, as we all know, so sadly, on the 18th of March, 1915, the Allies lost six ships trying to force the Straits. And then, of course, uh, largely down to him, uh, we doubled down and, uh, and landed on the 25th of April, 1915. And of course, over the next eight months, no fewer than 147,000 casualties were suffered in the um, Gallipoli Peninsula on the, on the western side of the strait. So um, this was a, a, a drastic and terrible uh, decision, but one that the real problem came in the implementation rather than the idea, in my view. Yeah, OK. Now, we went into politics. He left the Liberals, rejoined the Conservatives in the mid-1920s. Uh, why did he do that? Because the Conservatives came back to the idea of free trade. They had... Right. Uh, uh, it had been the party that left him rather than him that left the party. Yes. Uh, he joined the Liberals because uh, the Conservatives dumped free trade, and as soon as they returned to it, he returned to the party. Yeah, Churchill's often attributed with the quote, quote, if a man is not a socialist by the time he's 20, he has no heart. If he's not a Conservative by the time he's 40, he has no brain. <laughs> did, did Churchill really say that? No. Um, and unfortunately, there are lots of great lines like that that he didn't say. He never <laughs> said, uh, if you're going through hell, keep going. Uh, for example, he didn't make the famous joke about uh, about Lady Astor and drinking the coffee. <laughs> right. uh, there are any number of, uh, of great... He was one of those extremely lucky men, a bit like uh, uh, Groucho Marx and, uh, and Noel Powers. So if he said very funny things, people would uh, would attribute them to him. But even if he didn't say those funny things, people would attribute them. <laughs> We're talking about Winston Churchill with Andrew Roberts. Now, Andrew, you recount numerous occasions when Churchill cheated death in your biography. He survived a school stabbing, Cuban bullets, Boer artillery, German shells on the Western Front, a near drowning, two plane crashes, three car accidents... And a house fire. Crikey. Uh, yes, and, and also actually a very serious attack of pneumonia at the age of 11. And on that occasion, uh, the doctors administered brandy to the 11-year-old, uh, and uh, which you might have thought would have put you off um, the brandy for life. It certainly didn't in Winston Churchill's case. You make the point that Churchill developed the art of seeing virtually everything through the prism of history. Yeah, it was, of course, the fact that he was himself an historian. He wrote several extremely good history books. A literary genius. He was widely seen as a literary genius, wasn't he? He won the Nobel Prize for Literature. And uh, actually, he was rather unhappy about that because he thought it was the Nobel Prize for Peace that he was going to win. So he must be the only person in history who actually has been disappointed when he got the Nobel Prize for Literature. 
Now, we talk about a lot of people think of Churchill, they think of his attitude towards the Nazis and Hitler and, of course, the British policy of appeasement towards Nazi Germany. People forget this, but in the late 30s, it was actually popular with the British people. Tell us more about how Churchill railed against the spirit of the times in the late 1930s. Well, he was always a um, Silo-Semite. He liked Jews. He'd grown up with Jews. His father had liked Jews. He'd been on holiday with them. He appreciated the um, service that they'd, uh, that they'd served uh, humanity. He was a Zionist from uh, quite an early age. And so he had an early warning system when it came to Hitler and the Nazis that uh, a lot of the other people in Parliament, many of whom were anti-Semites, didn't have. He also uh, saw, we mentioned earlier about him being an historian, he, uh, he saw the threat um, to the European balance of power that Hitler posed. And he'd also seen fanaticism up close in his life um, in a way that the other prime ministers of the 1930s people like Stanley Baldwin and Neville Chamberlain didn't. So he was the first major British politician and for almost a decade, the only major British politician to not only warn against Hitler and the Nazis, but also to come up with an idea about what to do, i.e. rearming, especially in the air. Mm. By the way, did you know, you obviously know John Howard, our second longest serving prime minister. Did you know that his middle name is Winston? It was named by his parents in mid-1939 when, as we've just discussed, Winston Churchill was anything but the flavour of the month. He was seen as yesterday's man, right? Well, that shows um, John's parents' um, great uh, capacity for foresight. Um, <laughs> Indeed. Which is uh, trem- tremendously impressive, actually. I didn't know that, and, uh, and I'm very glad I do. Yeah, well, during the war, Churchill uh, husbanded relations with uh, the United States, which meant that America played an important role in helping Britain defeat Nazism. Um, but what about the Yalta Peace Conference towards uh, the end of World War II? You, you say it was not Churchill's finest hour. Why? Well, because they handed back a lo- large number of um, of Yugoslavs to um, to General uh, to Marshal Tito, who got uh, who, who basically uh, killed them and handed back a lot of Germans and uh, ethnic Germans, who uh, and ethnic Russians as well, actually Cossacks. Uh, to Stalin, who promptly um, murdered them as well. So as far as the sheer sort of realpolitik of the day was concerned, they had to believe, Roosevelt and Churchill had to believe Stalin's um, word of honour that he was going to he was going to respect the integrity and independence of Poland and other Eastern European mm. countries. But unfortunately, it also involved deals which, uh, which led to massacres. Yeah, false assurances by Stalin that, that, that the free elections would be held in Eastern Europe. But, I mean, are you a bit hard on Churchill because many historians would say that the dying FDR, he essentially stitched Churchill up. Um, I don't believe that to be the case. I've um, I've found myself the verbatim accounts of the war cabinet that uh, um, Churchill held on the return from Yalta, in which he very much says that uh, he thought he could do business with Stalin, that he believed Stalin, that the only alternative was to trust Stalin. Um, of course, he was the. Whilst that might have been uh, naive, he was. 
Uh, and there's very other few alternatives, of course, because in, uh, there are a million Russian soldiers in Poland at the time. Nonetheless, he was also at Fulton, Missouri in March 1946 uh, when he made the Great Iron Curtain speech, the first mm. major Western politician to warn against what Stalin was doing in Eastern Europe. On RN, this is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. My guest is Andrew Roberts, Professor of the Department of War Studies at King's College London and a visiting research fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University in California. No no doubt you've seen the movie The Darkest Hour. We are looking at the collapse of Western Europe in the next few days. You ask what is our aim? Victory at all costs. You're suggesting we're somehow winning. We're not. Is it true we're in full retreat? All our forces are now in Dunkirk, where we cannot reach them. They're pushing us into the sea. There is a question of peace talks between ourselves and Germany. Europe is still... Europe is lost. Now, that was The Darkest Hour, the 2017 war drama set in May 1940. The movie sets out Churchill's early days as PM and, of course, the May 1940 war cabinet crisis while the Nazis threatened to defeat Britain. Andrew Roberts, uh, what did you think of the movie The Darkest Hour? Is it an accurate account of Churchill in your judgment? Uh, Yes, it is, in fact. It's surprisingly accurate. There have been lots of uh, movies that have been hugely inaccurate about Churchill. This, on the other hand, captures him extremely well. I thought that Gary Oldman, with that chuckle in his uh, voice and that glint in his eye, caught, uh, caught Churchill superbly. Yeah, but much has been made of um, of uh, the, the betrayal of Churchill in the train, uh, talking to commuters about whether he should keep fighting the good fight. That, that's that's mythology, isn't it? That's that's completely ludicrous. Yes, the idea that he used a underground. Um train as a sort of focus group for whether or not to continue to fight against Hitler was um, was an absurdity. Um, the great thing was that instead of actually asking the people about whether to fight Hitler, he told the people that we were going to fight Hitler. This was an act of absolutely sublime leadership, not uh, not following the, uh, the herd as it's made out to be in the movie. Now, Gerard uh, de Groot, in a review of your book in the London Times, uh, I think he takes issue with you. The consensus view is that Churchill was targeting just German factories and military bases, but I think uh, de Groot made the point that um, he actually advocated terror bombing of civilians, and that was a criticism of your book. How would you respond to Gerard de Groot? Uh, well, Gerard de Groot seems to hate all the books I write. <laughs> so <laughs> this isn't a particularly uh, unusual thing that he's had a crack at this one. He, he seems to he seems to attack all of my books. I'm looking forward to him writing one that I've seen <laughs> stage. Um, he, um, uh, he's wrong. Um, the, major, um, the major cities that were targeted were the war production ones. The key thing, in, especially in 1943 and 1944, was to try to stop the increase, the massive increase in, uh, in German war material production. And you see this again and again for, in the choices of the places that they hit. Even Dresden, which was hit in uh, 13th of February 1945, had ophthalmic factories, had uh, railway marshalling yards that were being used by the Germans to bring their forces from the west to, to fight the Red Army in the east. Um, if 
uh, as there was, of course, um, one of the collaterals was uh, the, um, the mass terror of, of bombing in Germany. Well, that was frankly all to the good, but it wasn't the primary motivation for the bombing campaign. Yeah, heady days, no doubt. Now, had Churchill failed, Andrew, uh, had Britain fallen, what do you think would have happened to the world? Oh, it would have been absolutely catastrophic because, of course, Hitler would have been able to have um, to have attacked Russia in his own good time rather than when he did in uh, 22nd of June 1941. He'd have had the entire Luftwaffe and Wehrmacht. As it was, he uh, subjected Leningrad to a grueling thousand-day siege in the north. He nearly he got to the subway stations of Moscow. He captured Stalingrad down in the south. Had he had more than 70% of the Luftwaffe and the Wehrmacht, uh, he could well have pushed the Russians back beyond the Urals. If he captured um, Britain as well, the United States wouldn't have been able to have used southern England as a uh, unsinkable aircraft carrier to liberate the continent. In 1944, the British Navy, if it had joined the Royal Navy and the, sorry, if the Royal Navy had joined the German, French, and Italian navies, it would have been about ten times the size of the United States Navy. So Hitler could have, um, have threatened the whole of the eastern seaboard of the United States. The whole world would be in a very, very profoundly unpleasant uh, uh, place compared to what it was in, in 1945. Yes, you're right. The battles he won saved liberty. And there's no question he was right on the central question of his age. That is the meaning of Hitler. That's the point that Peggy Noonan, the former Reagan speechwriter, makes very clear in the Wall Street Journal when she reviewed your book. Now, we've been talking about this period from 40 to 45. Churchill led the British war effort. Uh, he represented the defiance of the nation. You make it very clear in your book that he did all this uh, with a plum. Yet he lost the 1945 election in a landslide. Why? Uh, well, by that stage, the British people were exhausted. They wanted all the good things that the Labour Party were offering, uh, free this, that and the other, welfare states, the National Health Service and so on. Uh, it wasn't until much later that we discovered that they weren't actually free and that people had to genuinely pay for it. And although Churchill had been cheered to the echo, of course, he was only one during the election campaign. He was only one name on the uh, on the ballot paper of one constituency, and there were 650 constituencies. Yeah. And when it was clear that uh, he would, he'd lost a landslide uh, defeat, uh, his wife Clementine said to him that um, maybe it was a blessing in disguise. And Churchill replied, well, from where I'm sitting, it seems quite remarkably well disguised. <laughs> well, was 1945, incidentally, the biggest landslide election result in British history? Yes, yes, it was. It was even bigger than 1906, uh, which, of course, um, brought him uh, to uh, Churchill back into government. And it was um, it was bigger than any of Tony Blair's or Margaret Thatcher's. Yeah, I was going to say, because Blair had a big one in 97. So 45 was the biggest landslide election result, biggest landslide defeat for the Tories. Yet even after a massive setback, Churchill was clearly formidable on the rebound. He correctly foreshadowed the threat of Soviet communism. You just mentioned the Iron Curtain speech. He returned to power in 1951. He had another four years as PM from 51 to 55. How do you rate his second stint as PM? Not so good. Uh, not as good as the uh, as the first one by far. Of course, it was a peacetime premiership, and those uh, aren't naturally aren't going to be as uh, as sensational. 
Um, but he was 80 by then. He had got uh, deaf. Um, he certainly hadn't got the kind of um, reforming instincts mm-hmm. of uh, himself as a younger man. And he was pretty much treading water. But having said that, they did manage to de-ration uh, all food. They got rid of, uh, they built a million council houses. Um, they uh, they deregulated a bit of the economy. So it wasn't a complete, uh, complete write-off by any means, but he certainly wasn't his old self. And do you think he stayed in power too long? Yes. Um, there were three great opportunities when he had a stroke in 1953 during the uh, coronation and also at the time of his 80th birthday when he could have retired and handed on to Anthony Eden. But he, uh, he loved being in power. He was, uh, he was somebody who was conditioned to grabbing power and holding it. And he, he was used to that all his life. And uh, unfortunately, he hung on a little bit too long. And that meant that Eden was not in power for very long by the time the uh, service crisis in 56. on him. This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. If you just tuned in, you're on RN's Between the Lines with me, Tom Switzer. Andrew Roberts is my guest, and he's the author of Churchill, Walking with Destiny. It's widely regarded as the best biography of Winston Churchill, which, as I keep saying, is saying something because there's been a thousand of them, Andrew. Extraordinary. Now, most historians today concede that Churchill had some interesting faults that made him human. You reject many of these in your biography. Let's deal with a few. Now, it's widely believed that Churchill suffered from severe bouts of depression. He even adopted the phrase black dog to describe the illness. Now, nowadays, the Black Dog Institute has since become the name of a famous Australian charity for mental health. Is this how you saw his disposition? No, uh, not in the slightest. I, I found absolutely no evidence at all that he was a, uh, a depressive, let alone a manic depressive. Uh, sometimes I've even seen bipolar in some of these 1,000 biographies. Um, I don't believe it for a minute. He, uh, he wasn't depressive. He only used the expression black dog once in his whole life, and that was in July 1911 when his wife Clementine was writing to his wife Clementine. It was a time that Edwardian matrons used the expression to... Uh, to describe their ill-tempered children. I mean, depression is a debilitating illness, and he chaired, chaired a thousand, sorry, 900 meetings of the Defence Committee of the War Cabinet. Um, he got depressed, undoubtedly, of course he did, at the fall of Singapore and the fall of Tobruk and during the Dardanelles catastrophe, um, but those are moments when any sentient decision-maker would have got depressed. What about another issue here? Big drinking. Churchill was known as a big drinker, yet you downplay his enthusiasm for the booze. Why? No, I don't. He loved drinking. Um, I, what I all I say in the book was that he was not an alcoholic. Um, he had the most extraordinary capacity for alcohol. He had an iron, a sort of rhinocerine hide for for, for drink. Um, and uh, in fact, one of his friends, C.P. Scott, said that uh, uh, Winston Churchill couldn't have been an alcoholic because no alcoholic could have drunk that much. <laughs> um, <laughs> and. Uh, and this is the thing about him. He, uh, he very much, alcohol was his servant and not his master. Um, and uh, we, there's only one day in the, uh, in the whole of the Second World War when he was drunk, which is quite extraordinary considering the amazing uh, stresses and pressures. Yeah, but when he visited Stalin in 1942, he boasted that he drank twice as much as his Russian hosts. And it was vodka as well, which, you know, Stalin was a vodka drinker and Churchill wasn't. Okay, now let's put all this in the he present day. Up. The next morning he did wake up with a 
killer hangover, <laughs> uh, which, he, which he told his uh, private secretary about. I'm sure he's not alone in politics. Now, listen, now let's put all this in the present day context. During the Brexit referendum in 2016, now both sides, the Remainers and the Leavers, they claim the memory of Churchill was on their side. Your thoughts? Well, Churchill, of course, was the um, founder of the European movement. He never wanted Teuton to fight Gaul, as he put it, uh, and he made great speeches, including ones calling for the United States of Europe in uh, the Hague and Strasbourg and Zurich. But in none of those speeches did he want Great Britain to become a member of this. He wanted it to be a ally and a friend and a supporter of Europe, but never a member because he respected the special relationship with the United States, the connections with the Commonwealth, and didn't think that uh, we should give up our sovereignty to a, a wider European project. So I think he would have wanted Britain to be a friend and ally of the EU today, but not a member of it. Of course, in the 60s, uh, de Gaulle made it very clear he vetoed uh, Britain's attempts to get into the European common market, correct? Yes, he did. And, uh, and he quoted Churchill whilst he was doing it, saying that uh, Churchill, in a rage with him once during the Second World War, said, you don't understand us. If we had a choice between the continent and the open sea, we'll always take the open sea. That's right. Now, listen, now, keeping with Brexit, you wrote at a very influential op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal several months ago, and you argued, quote, Something profoundly unpleasant has happened in Britain over the past three years. A concealed dislike of democracy on the part of a considerable subsection of the elite, those who lost the 2016 referendum. A very British coup is going on. Yes, well, we haven't in the last 300 years ever had the situation where um, the opposition has taken over the government, has passed laws against the government, again, in government time. Uh, it just hasn't happened since the Glorious Revolution, ever. And uh, it's happening without due process, with an impartial, supposedly impartial speaker, who very clearly is partial. Um, and, uh, and so we're in very uncharted territory here. But we've had on this program over the last year or so uh, some sceptics, uh, Sir Max Hastings, uh, Peter O'Born, among others, and they say there'll, you know, be significant economic dislocation if Britain leaves without a deal with Brussels. Do you think that's uh, a good enough reason to overturn what the people voted for? It just isn't. Um, and also, they, their crystal ball is no more impressive than anybody else's. The deal is that uh, we've got now, finally, a Prime Minister who is going to take us out of the European Union in accordance with what the British people voted for, and the sooner the better. Okay, finally, after the Brexit victory, you said, quote, one of the many splendid opportunities offered by Brexit was the resuscitation of Churchill's dream of uh, a Kanzuk Union, that is, comprising Canada, New Zealand, Australia and the UK. Is that really plausible? Uh, not just plausible, I think it's going to be pretty much essential. We're going to need as much uh, help and support from you as possible, please. But <laughs> <laughs> um, you're regretting uh, your decision going into the common market in 73, Andrew. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, absolutely. I was 10 years old, so I, I can't remember any of it myself. <laughs> but uh, I think it was a historic error. Blame Ken Clark, Clark, your Tory back. colleague. <laughs> Andrew, it's been a pleasure to have you on Between the Lines on RN today. Congratulations on your book on Churchill. You are kind. Thanks very much indeed, Tom. Well, that was Andrew Roberts. He's the author of Churchill, Walking with Destiny. It's published by Alan Lane. 
Well, that's the program for this week. And if you'd like to hear today's show again or any of our past episodes, you can. Just go to our website, abc.net.au slash rn, and follow the links from there. And of course, you can always download the ABC Listen app, where you can subscribe to Between the Lines and never miss an episode. Finally, Nicholas Burns, one of America's most distinguished diplomats, he's been a guest of the Lowy Institute this month. The Lowy Institute, of course, is one of our nation's leading foreign policy think tanks. And recently, Nicholas Burns delivered the Owen Harry's annual lecture. And this is a bit of what Burns told me on Between the Lines. I think in the States, a lot of the anger towards China is based on Chinese theft of American intellectual property, taking advantage of our companies that do business with China, violating the rules of the World Trade Organization. There's a sense that the Chinese have ripped off the part of the natural wealth of the United States. President Trump played on that in the tooth, and he was right to say it in the 2016 campaign. That's Nicholas Burns with me in next week's program. I'm Tom Switzer. I hope you can tune in again next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.